happening now. We'd like to <clears throat> welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world as we have horse hosts who are going to bring you the EdTech Situation Room for May the 3rd, 2017. My name is Wes Fryer, and I am happy to be coming to you live from Oklahoma City, where I am the Director of Technology at the Cassidy School, and a cherry pie is about to come out of the oven in five minutes that I think my wife is going to thoughtfully give me a piece of so I don't have to jump up. But if I jump up unexpectedly, because the pie has not arrived, I will you, will. you will know what happened. So I'm joined by Jason Neifer, guru of all ed tech in the northern tier, really from Kansas North. He's the man everyone looks to. How are you, Jason? <laughs> I'm well, Wes. How are you doing tonight? I am doing pretty well. We kind of got wiped out by exercise yesterday. Good thing. So anyway, uh, a nap later and an episode of, of Mr. Robot later, and uh, I'm I'm ready for the show. I'll do it. So uh, good evening from Missoula, Montana, where it was, I think it had to be, I haven't looked yet, but it had to be over the upper 70s today. It was an absolutely beautiful day. The first really beautiful day we've had for 2017. So I'm glad um, that our weather, our very wet and cold springtime weather seems to be moving on. So I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual supplemental program located on the University of Montana campus where we serve students from um, almost 200 schools a semester um, across the fabulous uh, state of Montana. Um, and in fact, today I was actually not at work. I was working on some dissertation research and um, something happened today that, that distracted my attention. I had to kind of digitally jump into work. I was going to put together a breaking news bumper, but you're going to have to let me just improvise. Like, like sugar, gung, gung, gung. There's breaking news in the ed tech world, and for those that have had to deal with it today, this is not breaking at all, but um, The Verge notes that Google Doc users were hit today by a sophisticated phishing attack, and although I don't know if I would call it Google Doc users, because honestly, it was probably more or less um, Gmail users that were hit, or actually any email user that was hit by this attack, um, I noticed this morning, um, late morning, that I had received seven emails that look all the same from accounts that said, click here to open up a document. Um, all of the emails were to an HHHHHHHHHHHH at, and I can't remember the, the name of the address, but I, uh, someone that, that is on the Montana Tech Director Lick Serve said that it was a popular um, anonymous email service, and um, by the time I was able to get in and go to our e-discovery service to look at the email archives, we've been sent a couple hundred of those across our program. And the thing that's interesting about this, I never clicked through to find out more about it, and I do have a fake Gmail account that I use sometimes to be able um, to, to do that, but essentially it was a very sophisticated phishing attack that uh, opened up a window, asked you to put in your Gmail um, or Google authentication uh, process um, that was all well and good, but it was kind of a legitimate uh, 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 username and password ask, unlike other phishing attacks, because it then asked you to um, authorize the installation of an application um, or script into your Google account that essentially gave the, the malicious uh, script um, access to your entire email account where it then replicated very quickly and very effectively. And I received a couple dozen of these today. My program, across program, received several hundred of these. And I can report from hearing from reports from schools across Montana that a lot of folks were hit by this today. Um, I would strongly recommend if you work in IT in a school district and you utilize Google Apps for Education, um, start with that Verge article, um, which does refer to other resources on how you might get rid of this in users if anyone has that. And certainly, uh, you know, these are always great opportunities for you to start this discussion with users and teach folks more about how to be suspicious about email, um, ask for your usernames and passwords, and, and being very, very suspicious of emails that are sending you shared documents that you're neither recognize or, or, or expect. And I would say that uh, it was interesting watching this play out today, especially uh, watching the discussion board with, with, with uh, tech directors across the state of Montana. Um, but, you know, it, it take a, took a lot of staff attention today to deal with this. We sent out three emails to our staff warning to not, not open up emails. And it's certainly something that, um, is an interesting kind of sign of our times. So I guess, Wes, you as a tech director, did you see any of this activity today? 
<clears throat> we did and sent out an email uh, warning folks about it, letting them know that they can report phishing from inside the Google application. Um, spam has its own little icon at the top by the labels and the trash and stuff. But when you click on the little arrow in the upper right corner of the message, you can say report phishing. And one of the things I had learned last week at the Atlas conference in California at the three hour cybersecurity workshop that I attended on Sunday was that schools who are doing phishing tests and sending false phishing messages are actually seeing uh, much lower instances of users clicking in part because people are reporting the phishing and within your domain ostensibly as well as within the larger Google universe, when you report those, it recognizes it and actually removes it from people's inboxes. So I did wow. not receive it, but we did have users do that. Um, and I'm curious, Jason, did they say in addition to, you know, capturing somebody's credentials and replicating itself, did, did it, does it do anything else? What do we know what the, the payload or the, you know, actual, um, you know, bad stuff malware that it might distribute or do? I've not read anything to suggest that it did anything other than replicate itself. But that said, the scary part about this is, is that if you did go in and, um, you know, offer those credentials, it certainly could have downloaded a copy of your email and that could be a treasure trove of doom for in lots of instances. And of course, you know, the scariest thing in regards to, to our institutions, educational institutions, is that we trade in, in, in student data all the time. And so having access to someone's email account or their Google account to get into Google Docs where there might be sensitive information stored, um, is always a problem. And, you know, what I don't think that information is is independently valuable unless you're trying to then blackmail a district or an individual, and then it becomes a huge cluster of doom. Well, we I'll, I'll try to drop the link into the show notes, but uh, one of the things that I don't know if they talked about this at the cybersecurity workshop or if I if I read this, but there are now programs which will grab credentials and then literally scan yeah. hundreds of websites to right. say, oh, you logged in as this username, this password. I bet you used it somewhere else, and then boom, it just, you know, is scripted to be able to to do that. So um, one of the most important takeaways from that cybersecurity workshop that relates to this is two-factor authentication. And one of the co-leaders of the workshop had had an incident at his school where they had had, I think it was a laptop that was stolen and then credentials that were taken. But because they had two-step verification, that played in very importantly to what the lawyers actually said and as they talked about it, you know, a lot of cybersecurity is um, risk management and you're trying trying to manage risk of, um, you know, breaches and, and data loss and all those kinds of things. So uh, it two factor is a very important thing. And that's something else to ask people to do and let them know. Absolutely. So we are the EdTech Situation Room, and we're thankful to have Martin and Peggy with us in our live chat room. And there's Ben Wilkoff as well. So we've got uh, representation from Montana, Arizona, and Colorado tonight for our 50th golden episode. Sure to Yay! Have the most Yay! amazing you know, 55, 60 minutes of your week, perhaps not. But there are some exciting articles to talk about. Microsoft had some pretty interesting announcements. And if you would like, as always, to access our show notes, you can find those at techsr.com slash links. And we generally have links that we are not able to talk about, uh, but all the ones that we do talk about are there. And, of course, if you're listening to this on a recording, you can also access all the show notes and both audio and video archives of our show on edtechsr.com. So, Jason, we've got the, the fast-breaking news we had to do about phishing. Uh, what else would you like to take us to to just inaugurate this amazing golden episode? Sure. Well, um, I, I, think, um, there's, I think there's a lot of fodder here, um, and I'm actually curious to hear uh, Mark Gracie's take on some of this stuff, too. I may have to wait for a, a lunch where he... Uh, we talked more about my dissertation to do this, but um, Microsoft had an event yesterday, a Microsoft EDU event, I think is what they're calling them now, where they announced their competitor to the Chromebook um, and their competitor to Chrome OS. And some basic details, uh, Windows, or I'm sorry, Microsoft will release something called Windows 10 S. No word on what the S means. Um, well, I, I, did, I, did, I did hear about this. Um, I watched a Bloomberg video, and it mm -hmm. said it was a shout-out to uh, exclusive um, uh, automotive, like it wasn't Mercedes, but it was another automotive company oh. that has the S-Series. 
but they were talking about it as the as as this other laptop, the thousand dollar one. So is right, that is, right. the, is the S going to be on both the Chromebook and the thousand dollar, or is well that that's that's the Chromebook alternative. Like that's that, and that's where I think things get off the rails a little. The bit. The thousand dollar one is the Chromebook uh, killer. <laughs> It, yeah. So, well, okay. No, I have an argument against that, though. So, uh, but to, I guess maybe the big headlines are Windows 10s is released. It's a scaled back version of Windows, and scaled back not in a way that's less functional, though I think it's de facto less functional. They're essentially adopting the Chrome OS model, where you get access to just two things: you get access to the Edge browser, and you get access to the Windows Store apps, of which there is a fledgling ecosystem of at this point, and that's the only thing that stalls on there. And um, one of the things that's interesting about that to me is that they're apparently also making Windows 10S available to Windows Pro users. I don't know what Pro means. I'm assuming that means like Windows 7 uh, professional and Windows 8 professional, Windows 10 professional users. So in other words, you can't upgrade from like a Windows 7 home OS computer to a to this uh, um, whatever this this new thing is the Windows 10 S is um, uh, you have to do it from another Pro computer. But at the same time, they introduced this new operating system. They also introduced the Surface laptop, so that goes along with the Surface uh, uh, tablets, the Surface Book, which is the uh, Pro version laptop. They've released two of. Um, which will be my my probably in my next laptop and um, the um, now the Surface uh, laptop, which is and this is where it, it's a little interesting. It's a device that comes Windows 10 S. It starts at $999. It can get configured up to I think it's $1899, which is the i7 16 gigabyte uh, 250. No, it's actually a 512 gigabyte hard drive to do that. But that device is built to come with Windows 10S, and as an optional upgrade, you can get Windows 10 Pro initially for free. Um, and then, if if you uh, don't want, or if you don't want it right away and want to upgrade later, I think it's like a $59 or $49 upgrade. So I think there's a lot of things to talk about here. Oh, and by the way, they also demonstrated that. Uh, uh, there was a lot of talk during the live event, which was uh, early Tuesday morning on uh, Mountain Time, that um, you know that we hear from our our, our uh, uh, tech director friends and school districts that they need an easier way to roll out, and that other platforms and endorsed by the platforms they mean Chrome um, and, and the Chromebook phenomenon have told us that they need much easier pathways to roll out large uh, purchases of computers, and so you can create a thumb drive. Uh, and it, with the administrative information on it to set up one of these Surface uh, laptops, it takes two or three minutes per laptop to load the information on. It joins your network and domain, um, and you have access to that. And in the same way that, uh, you know, in a Chromebook, in a managed environment, you log on with your credentials. It gives you your desktop back and, and whatever is installed on there. The same thing also happens with the Windows 10S devices as well. So I think there's a lot of things here. I think I want to start off with the notion of the minimum being a $999 um, Surface uh, laptop. So I'm, I'm guessing by your your physical reaction, Wes, that you find that price to be distasteful. Well, reality says schools are going to need to look at, you know, of course, total cost of ownership, but, you know, price and what, what these things cost and, and it's going to factor in significantly. Um, I think for the first time in Apple's history, we saw them reduce the price of a device with this latest iPad for the educational discount with Wi-Fi only 32 gig. It's at $300. Um, Unless Microsoft is going to bring something else out, I have no idea how they're going to actually compete price-wise with, with Chromebooks. Right. We just well, got quotes from, we're working with a company called Trinity 3, I think they're out of Minnesota, and we are and we've, we purchased last year a number of Dell 11-inch, 4-gigabyte uh, Chromebooks and have been very, very pleased with those. And uh, I think we got them maybe at 167 plus the $25 license. So we're looking at somewhere around $175 per laptop with a management de you know, license built in. I don't understand how a $1,000 laptop can be competitive with that, if that truly is what they're trying to target. 
Well, I, I thought a lot about this because that's the first thing I did too. I, I, when I uh, saw the picture, I had, the, I had the live stream on in the background when I was working yesterday and I saw the picture of it and I'm like, uh, wow, that, that seems like that would be a nice laptop. Like that's a nice uh, metal plus cloth laptop that looked like it was an interesting design. But I, I don't think that that's intended to compete with the $179 Chromebook. That's intended to compete with the uh, $999, $1299, $1499, $1699 Chromebook Pixel that was released by Google in 2013 and 2015. Okay, and by the way, Ben Ben is dropping in some things here that I, I had seen that laptop as more of the MacBook Air, uh, MacBook Pro competitor, and he's saying that yeah, there are Windows 10s devices that start at one hundred and eighty nine dollars. Precisely, yep. And, and in so, fact, they're, yeah. they, they're calling them channel partners, I think. And I heard June was when we're going to start seeing those devices released. And I hear HP and Lenovo are both in on it. I'd be really surprised if Dell didn't jump in on that too. Um, but I think that, that the straight across competitor to, you know, the low cost, uh, Chrome books is the 189, 289, 389, um, books we're about to see. But the, the big caveat to this is, and even though I was willing to cut Microsoft a break because, you know, I've, I, I've only played with a Chromebook Pixel and a Pixel 2 a couple of times and it was a fabulous experience. And I'm sure if the, the, uh, uh, Surface Book is, I'm sorry, the Surface Laptop, if it's, if, if it's competitive in that way, um, then great. But it depends on how snappily the OS runs on the low end hardware. And that's where the Chrome OS is dominant in this field. They have a tweaked out, uh, a scaled back version of Linux that scales really well to the super low end. And yeah, you can't run 13 YouTube windows on an ARM based processor with two gigabytes of RAM on a Chromebook, but you probably can't do that on a $189 Surface um, uh, laptop either. So I really, really want to install this on some medium and low end hardware and, and see what that looks like. All right. So that USB, you know, startup and restore sounds amazing, but Ben Wilkoff is pointing out it's still not cloud managed. And I think yep. we need to be really careful to not just, Oh, the hardware, the hardware, because it's really about the software. I mean, we've, we have, Different companies, you know, pushing things as far as speed. And yes, there's the, there's the web, there's HTML5 and all the things that you can get on the web. But from the standpoint of schools, being able to manage your Chrome devices within the Google admin console, being able to, um, you know, this is the thing that Apple and, and you all, you and Martin talked about this a little bit last, last time, the mobile device managed. Now, I wouldn't go so far as Martin said, complete fail. I'm, I'm not going to go there because it has gotten a lot better. And, you know, I'm in the place where we are managing Chromebooks through the Chrome admin console and a mobile device manager. And I'm on the cusp of actually moving to a different mobile device manager. I had heard early on that they're all created equal. That's not true. There certainly are differences as far as function and ease of use and the kinds of things that, that you right. put in front of teachers. But Apple, it is certainly true. They are still struggling um, to make that the same kind of seamless process it is. And it truly is from a Google standpoint. I mean, the, the best experience of this was last summer when I think we had maybe 120 Chromebooks and I think uh, there were four of us, but, you know, within the space of about two hours, uh, we had all of those, you know, onboarded to our network and ready to go. And now, I mean, as we're working with this Trinity 3 company, you know, they'll do a complete white glove, you know, deal for right. us. So they'll yeah. come provisioned, you know, on our network, you know, labeled the, the whole nine yards. So I am just really reticent to get you get super excited about this, as we've seen in the cases of, you know, home broadband and also broadband for schools and, uh, you know, and the cell phones. We've talked about, you know, T-Mobile and Verizon, et cetera. Generally, competition is good. It's going to be good for the consumer. It's going to provide options. Um, some other things from the chat, you know, uh, Martin's pointing out that, you know, Windows doesn't even index files the way that the Mac does. And being able to use Spotlight and quickly find your stuff, um it's uh it there there are big differences and so just like with android you know people get excited wow look at this amazing you know 500 megapixel camera no it's not that but it's like 12 or you know 16 or whatever um 
but it doesn't have, you know, what's the app ecosystem? And it's gotten better for Android, and, you know, I, I know that that's improved, but I definitely don't think Microsoft is there on the cloud management side for the devices, and they're not there in the app ecosystem. And this is something that Apple has done really well, and uh, and Google, frankly, now with extensions and, and all the things that you right. can add on into the Chrome environment. Right. So I don't see that, I don't see this changing many people's technology orders this summer, but it's definitely... Right. Uh, interesting and exciting to to see it happen. I want to ask Ben Wilkoff a question in the chat to see if he'll chime in. He says that this Microsoft uh, event was um, one of the weirdest, let me quote him exactly. Yeah, it was the weirdest series of announcements I've ever seen. Did you get to see the, the announcements or watch video of it, Jason? I heard the first 40 minutes of it, uh, complete attention, and then I did half attention the rest of the time. Would you, would you characterize it as weird? I mean, um, it wasn't like other Microsoft announcements. Um, I, I felt like that they were. Um, I I felt like they were staging themselves as a, as a scrappy upstart in, in in the educational market, while at the same time trying to claim that they're the dominant player in K twelve. And um, you know, it depends on how you do that. But um, yeah, I um, yeah, I I I didn't like it. As, as, a, as a general announcement, but part of it is is that you know like if you're if you follow this over time, like it's it's an about face for Microsoft, right? Like a lot of the stuff they're doing here is is doing stuff that they were criticizing Google for doing three years ago when they first started getting traction in K twelve. But that said, you know um, the the new leadership at Microsoft is different. Like they are much more nimble. They are willing to go down a pathway they wouldn't have gone down before. And I do think that's to their benefit. Surprising, but it's to their benefit. Well, um, <laughs> I was going to put this in the chat. So I was uh, for my my quote for uh, it was it was fun to listen to you guys last night or last night last last week. Um, I think that. There's a host of issues that come to play for schools when we talk about the educational lens for this. And certainly, you know, where you are as a technology department with your expertise and with imaging and with being able to to uh, to re-image machines and where your users are, right? Because if you are an early adapter user of technology, you may not have nearly the the uh, issues, you know, moving from a Mac device to a, a Chromebook, you know, to a Windows device. Um, but, um, you know, as we were discussing this announcement today, um, there, there's just, a, there, there are a lot of issues to consider and I, I, am excited to see them certainly stepping up on the imaging side because that's been a real challenge for us. There, I know there's a host and you mentioned the fog project and, yeah. you know, there's, there's several other kinds of things, but even with windows 10, with the new laptops we purchased last summer, the ID was was in the chip, and so we weren't we'd we'd used you know semantic ghosts and things like that, and it right. we we were just having to do the restore. But this this is a key thing that ties back to our first topic of cybersecurity, and that is being able to completely wipe what what Chrome calls a power wash, where yeah. you completely take everything off of your system right. and you have a pristine copy of your operating system. That is a really important thing for schools and for home users right. to be able to do. <clears throat> and I, I mean, I remember way back in 1998, I think when I was in a, a Windows 95 computer lab in Lubbock, Texas, you know, we were using Symantec Ghost and it seemed like a nuclear option. But when you have machines that were running slow and things were happening that were wonky, you know, the easier thing was you had a good clean image of your operating system with your programs and you put a three and a half inch floppy disk, remember that, into the drive and you, you know, ran a, a batch file, a script and it pulled it off and, you know, it took a, a, an hour, a couple hours or something like that. But then you had a whole lab that was completely blown away. Now there's imaging software that you can just do that remotely with. But those, that kind of function that used to be more of an IT, you know, really, really geek thing, um, you know, I don't know how many times I've had to have to completely restore, you know, our iPhones at home to, to um, their, their uh, uh, default settings and things like that. So there's a lot of, a lot of chatter in our chat. Hey, it's great to have a bunch of folks in there tonight. Well, I will say one other thing related to this, and then we can pull in some comments from the chat room. Um, my understanding is that this can be installed on any windows computer. It 
just depends on, and I'm sure it's not unlike the 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 Chromium OS uh, uh, installs like Cloud Ready. It probably doesn't support all hardware universally, like like you know most Windows 10 installs do. Um, I don't really understand how that works yet, and I, I really wasn't able to find anything that gave me a true indication of of what that looks like. But I have reached out to some sources I have at Microsoft. I'm hoping to figure out what the what a download of Windows 10s looks like, if that is truly what what I thought it was going to be. And then I want to get installed, and I want to see if I can utilize this uh, uh, platform to be productive. And I'll tell you, it took me a little while to figure out how to be productive in Chrome um, on a Chrome OS device. But the bottom line is, is that I, I figured it out because of how advanced the Chrome plugin architecture was. And now that, that, that Android apps are available with the massive Android uh, app universe, my Chromebook that allows me to install Android apps is an amazingly functional device. And so I could, uh, with every application except maybe one or two, easily get away with 97% of what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. And I'm an advanced technology user that needs technology to do my job. Um, in the Chrome environment. And I, you know, the Edge browser is fast and, and speedy. Um, there are some decent apps in the, the Windows Store. Um, I hope that this sparks innovation to make that a real reality that Windows 10 S can be a, a, a real reality as a productive operating system. One of the other things that's uh, going on in the chat um, is talking about Minecraft. And I guess one of the announcements is that Minecraft Education Edition is free for a year. And I'm glad to see that. Um, I actually shared at lunchtime today a hour-long webinar, which Peggy was able to join for librarians in Florida, all about Minecraft in the classroom. And we have the older Minecraft EDU license version, uh, which is very different. And Microsoft's pricing has been just horrible for schools, basically, in terms of an annual subscription and how much you would have to pay on an ongoing basis for each user, et cetera. So um, I think that is that is exciting. And um, Peggy just dropped the, the link to those slides from today. I We haven't played with the new uh, Minecraft Education Edition. Um, so it's exciting to see some things, you know, coming out of Microsoft. We have a Microsoft store here in downtown Oklahoma City. I'm you know, actually interested to go see this hardware. What I'm also interested in is, can we hackintosh it, right? Oh, did I just say that on a documented um, webinar? I think I did. Um, interesting little sidebar. If you'd like, if you'd like to read <clears throat> some posts that were attributed to a fictional character, you can you can search my blog for Sherman Nicodemus because there were some times where I was <laughs> having to write some things and not wanting to. Uh, publicly attribute that I was actually, oh, I was hacking my device. Um, but seriously, when it, when we look at the Mac, uh, we need a device that has a security, uh, a slot to, to have a security cable on it. That's been very important for us in our environment. And, you know, having a thousand dollar or less robust machine that, you know, has a, you know, an intent, not, not this, what is, what is this thing? An A7 processor or whatever that's in my MacBook. You know, the, the power of that looks very attractive, but it doesn't run Mac OS. So I think this is going to be something interesting to check out and see. But from my standpoint, you know, uh oh, I'm, I'm being, I'm being called in on the Hackintosh. Yeah. We still have, uh, what was that? A Dell Mini 10. We had a little purple version. It was a 10 inch, you know, and we can hold down whatever the alt key and boot it into Mac, boot it into, to Windows. Hasn't been a popular device at our house though, so it's sitting on, uh, I can, sitting on a shelf. <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, well, I you know I am interested. I think this is an interesting uh, move on Microsoft's part. Uh, but the bottom line is is that if it's not a good experience in the sub five hundred dollar realm, um, you know I've seen a lot of advertising about schools that have adopted things like Surface uh, Surface Four Pros school wide. That's awesome. And if your school can afford that, that's great. But that's not the reality of a lot of schools that, that I work with and, and a lot of schools that, you know, have limited or, or, or almost no funding for, for technological uh, uh, purchases. So I'm, I'm hoping this becomes a viable alternative. But I do think that this does ultimately create some boom for the, 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 the uh, Chromebook crowd because it does start to have people thinking about more. Do we need the full uh, the full operating system uh, to be able to compute in a meaningful and a productive way? And I, I think I've proven to myself that I don't, you don't need to. But um, interesting um, 
how that will play out. So, all right. Well, I uh, there a bunch of other articles. I want to I want to take us to this one from Business Insider, which, by the way, I just realized on the on the iPad you can't read a Business Insider um, article in Safari when you have an ad blocker on. So we're seeing this happen. You know, some websites yeah. are really getting to be pretty pretty serious about saying you you must play our ads if you're going to see our content. So this is an article from Matt Weinberger on April 23rd, and the title from Business Insider is, The Smartphone is Eventually Going to Die. This is Mark Zuckerberg's Crazy Vision for What Comes Next. And so Zuckerberg shared at the Facebook F8 conference out in San Jose uh, this 10-year roadmap for where social media is going to go and and really where VR is going to fit into this and where they see, you know, uh, social as well as the workplace uh, fitting in. Um, Jason, do you do you agree with Zuckerberg's idea that we're going to be a a world without screens and it's going to be science fiction and we're going to have glasses and stuff's going to be projected on our eyes? And uh, and and I guess it reminds me of Elon Musk's new enterprise, which we may have mentioned on the show, which is this Neuralink, I think is what it's called. And it's the, they're working on the brain, you know, computer connection. Right. I don't know. Do you, I guess the bottom line is, is Facebook going to cash in on their Oculus investment? That's what Microsoft's trying to do with their Minecraft one, right? So Facebook right. hopes they'll do the same thing with, with Oculus. Well, I always find it interesting when the future is screenless, because it feels like to this point in the last 15 years, the future is always about everything being a screen, right? Like they had massive surfaces all around the house, you know, everyone trying to hack their mirrors to add weather forecast into it. And, uh, you know, it seemed like everything was a screen as opposed to having, um, you know, nothing be a screen. But I think the phenomenon here that may give us some guidance is that people are becoming more and more interested in smaller screens and personalized screens. And it's not that everyone shares a massive screen in your home. It's that everyone has their own screen and they're using that to engage in media and to go on to social media and to, you know, essentially engage in the world through those devices. If that's true, I think it does make a lot of sense then that uh, part of Zuckerberg's long-term vision here is a play for the the smallest of screens, the ones that you don't see at all, the ones that directly beam information into, you know, re- your receptacles. Um, I, I think that the answer probably isn't the Oculus answer, right? Like, I think the virtual reality is probably going to succumb ultimately to augmented reality. That's kind of what Mr. Zuckerberg's suggesting here is that, you know, that it's it's somewhere, it's not that you're, you're lost completely in an environment, that mm-hmm. you are engaged somehow as part of your daily life. And so it probably looks more like augmented than it does like virtual. Well, and what he, the term he's using, I guess, or they're using in the article is mixed reality. So this is a mixed reality world. And I think that's really reasonable. You know, I've yep. wanted this in professional development sessions or teaching students too. Like, let me see how overloaded and overwhelmed you are right now with a little virtual meter, you know, over your head. Or, you know, how much uh, past experience do you have with um, – you know, with Seesaw or with Minecraft or whatever it is that we're talking about and being able to to look out on your class and see a virtual representation of that. Um, when when uh, my wife and I were at this Atlas conference in, in uh, California this weekend or last week, we were able to Monday night see a live broadcast of the TED 2017 conference, which happened last last week in a series of, of different uh, evening presentations. And one of the first speakers on the Monday, this was like simulcast into theaters. Uh, I think at Vancouver was where the live event was. Um, and one of the speakers was an artist who brings up representations of technologies in the future with the idea of trying to get us to have an experience and then think about what that looks like. Well, the one she showed about drones, you've probably seen some things like this where, you know, the camera is, is seeing from above and you're able to see a little above each person, you know, their identity because facial recognition is, has ID'd them. And maybe there's a color, you know, based upon are they a threat? Are they on the watch list or something like that? So there's definitely, you know, security sides of this that there's a a segment of our population that is very interested in. Um, But I, I like that idea of a mixed reality world in the same way that I like the term blended learning. 
right? You are working, Jason, in a, in a, in a 100% virtual environment with the exception of a few site visits and things like that, but it's pretty much all online. A lot of schools are now working in a blended environment where you have a learning management system, you're using a tool like Google Classroom, or you're using Seesaw for, for, for portfolios, and it becomes this extension of the classroom. And so I definitely think we're living there now, right, with our phones, uh, with us, and, and the ways that they exert the powerful draw upon us and, and how much information and interaction we have with our social circles. Um, this, this idea of a mixed reality world doesn't sound too far fetched, but I think it's interesting. They, they show what looks like a, a Warby Parker, uh, or, you know, it looks like, um, um, oh, uh, Buddy Holly glasses, you know, with black, black rimmed glasses. And Peggy mentioned in the chat that, you know, Google glasses didn't seem to go very far, but I would say that was just kind of too out there and it was just glaringly obvious that you were wearing those. And so as these technologies become more embedded and it, and you look like less of an outlier and more like a normal person, perhaps they won't be rejected as much by society as folks are using these. Right. Well, and you know, that's where um, the HoloLens from Microsoft, um, there are hundreds of smaller companies that are working on, you know, some version of that and kind of a, of a mixed or, or, or augmented reality phenomenon. And I think that's probably better uh, because, um, you know, and if, for no other reason than I, I think we, if anything, we're experiencing a counter movement towards virtual reality and not VR as a, a consumer product, but virtual reality is a broader philosophical concept. And so I definitely think that's heading um, in that particular direction. Hey, I was, I'm, I'm typing this in, but, but uh, Ben or uh, Martin or, or Peggy, if any of you want to jump in the show, I guess Ben has actually, well, he didn't, he wants to break him out. I was about to say he's donned his Google glasses just for, for tonight's show, but he still has, has his copy. Were you a special in- 50th anniversary Google Glass showing? So, yeah. uh, Felix Giacomino loaned me a co- loaned me a pair of those for a while, um, and and I I used them, but yeah, it just it was a little bit little bit too far on the on the bleeding edge. So I yeah I I wore a pair around for uh, two hours <laughs> at a conference a couple of years ago, and I mean again it was interesting and it was cool, and I still think there's something there. It's just that. You know, Google didn't want to give it the time to reiterate. And they took a lot of public perception issues, too. I mean, you may remember the glass hole movement and a lot of people criticizing folks with glass. And then, of course, you know, every idiot that was, uh, you know, like walking in the street because they were busy kind of looking at the upper right hand eye of their corner of their eye. And, you know, it 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 uh, I'm sure it would have reiterated appropriately, but the reiteration is going to happen in private. Martin also dropped in a good point on the on the chat that that glass did go somewhere. It's just not necessarily where the team thought or where we might have thought it would go as consumers. You know, it's a hidden medicine and high tech manufacturing. One of my favorite uh, Google videos. There's a a virtual tour that what were they called? Glass pioneers or something? You know, Google selected different teachers to um, adopt, and he went to CERN, which is in Switzerland, which is the the hadron collider where they accelerate particles and crash them into each other and so he's able to take his students on this on this live tour um so yeah i mean it the march of technology rarely do we fully anticipate in advance where things are going to go and how they're going to all uh play out there but uh yeah it uh that was that was an expensive experiment for those people that that dropped the money on those yeah absolutely all right where do you want to take us next jason well, let's go ahead and talk about um, da, 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 da. actually, I just wanted to mention this for just one second. I put an interesting link into a Kickstarter project. Um, and of course, you know, Kickstarters uh, are a great place to throw money that you don't need or ever want to see again. So, uh, but this is a, an interesting phone. It's called Jelly, the world's smallest 4G uh, smartphone. Um, they were looking for $30,000 to launch and they raised $235,000. And essentially the jelly is a modern Android smartphone running the latest Android OS or Android nougat, Android 7.0. Um, and it has a 2.3 inch screen. Um, and it, otherwise the specs of it are fairly advanced. They would be equal to maybe a mid range phone and the phone itself retails for well under $200. And the reason why I mentioned this is because uh, I think it fits within this, this discussion of 
for a while, everything was going to get bigger, 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 right? And um, it's not, right? Like laptops have kind of stalled out at, at, at 11, 13, 15 inches. You'll still find the occasional person that will carry around their 17-inch Alienware laptop that weighs you know, uh, 143 pounds that requires two power supplies to, to load up. But, you know, it's smaller, thinner has been the general phenomenon. And um, I actually, uh, a, a kind of a, an older brother, a former student of mine is a, a fairly prominent Silicon Valley, former CEO and investor. And um, I'm friends with him on Facebook. And he talks about quite a bit about how he really liked moving towards the, uh, yeah, the, yeah, tiny, tiny, tiny phone. Um and um, the uh, he talks about the iPhone SE as being a real revelation for him because it, it has all the modern specs of a cell phone, but it's a smaller screen. He feels it's a more personal experience, but also he feels like that he he, he doesn't he doesn't feel like he's tempted to work on the phone because it's big enough to be able to do everything he wants to do. He uses it for connection and entertainment and pictures and music and, inter- and entertainment only. And so that notion of I think we're still struggling with or kind of going back and forth with what the ideal size of things are, um, you know, that I think is an interesting, uh, interesting piece. Um, so I know the answer to this because I know your OS preference, but are you in the market for a jelly phone, Dr. Fryer? Well, I was looking at going to Vietnam this summer and I have pulled out for various reasons. Um, and at that point, I was going to find out what your burner phone recommendation or whatever was yeah. for, you know, going international. Uh, so really not. Yeah, I'm, I'm not not in the market. But to connect this back to the Mark Zuckerberg article about the future of where mobile is going, he talks talked about and I didn't like see the broadcast. I just read articles, but he he talked about this idea of ubiquity in connectivity. We see Google as well as Facebook making investments to blanket the world with connectivity. And, you know, the idea of that high speed connection just, you know, being there at all times and the devices becoming very affordable. And, and that is what we see happening in, in India as well as China and, and other places. And I'm sure Africa and there's probably people can speak to this a lot better, but, you know, price does matter. And, and so you can't just, you know, these, uh, smartphones and, and devices that are very expensive have, have pushed the market, but that's not where, Consumers are going to stay, and and especially large swaths of the global population, you know, that's not going to be able to afford um, a five hundred dollar, you know, smartphone. I, th- this is this is a big deal, um, and this isn't exactly connected to it. But I'm I'm going to be in the I'm going to be learning about Raspberry Pi. I've not played with Pi before, and this this idea of this microcomputer and what you can do with it. Um, this is an important space for students to be experimenting and dabbling and tinkering because the connected world is not, I mean, well, far be it from me to have a crystal ball and tell you what's going to happen politically in our, you know, charged environment of North Korea and French elections and all these kinds of exciting things that are happening. But, you know, barring a a global Armageddon that takes us all off the grid and, you know, back to the dark ages. I mean, we're going to, we're going to stay connected and, and there's just going to be more and more people online and the bar is going to continue to be lowered in terms of entry for what you, for who gets to participate in the, the global conversation and the global access, not, not just access to content, but the ability to interact, to purchase, to, you know, have your life change transformatively by, by your access to it. So I think Jelly's pretty cool. I'm glad you dropped that in. And, um, you know, and I should also say, buyer beware on any Kickstarter project. Uh, I've never had a project straight disappear on me before, but I would say of the maybe 10 or so projects I've backed, I've been disappointed in, in probably six or seven out of 10. And, uh, it's a wonderful, interesting model, but it, it, it is fraught with peril. And there have been lots of instances where Kickstarter projects just evaporate and the money goes away with it. So, uh, certainly don't expect or don't, don't take our discussion today to be a, an endorsement of this product. That's right. Hey, I think Ben Wilkoff is actually uh, getting his glasses charged up. So I'm going to DM him, BM him the link in case he wants to uh, jump in and do a 50th golden anniversary appearance the first time with, with, uh, with glasses on. And by the way, Martin and, and Ben were both early adapt, early adopters in, in that pioneer program. Uh, so that's, that's pretty cool. Um, that says something about our audience here for at TechSR. 
All right. Well, I think I would like to take us to um, two connected articles. Uh, one, I think you dropped in, Jason, from Recode from April 29th, the uproar over enroll.me, selling user data to Uber shows most people don't understand ad-based business models. And then the article, it's uh, number four right now in the show notes below the Zuckerberg article. This is Lifehacker on April 25th, how to secure your online accounts by revoking access from third-party apps. And so this was a um, article that, that it got a lot of attention and the company that it focused on, um, then I just, just DM'd you the link there, um, is this company called, uh, called Unroll. And what it allows you to do is take stock of how many different apps and websites you have given access to uh, your accounts and, and then unenroll you from, from those. Um, oh no, actually, is that what that does? Or is this the, is this the email? I think it's no, this. That, is, no, this is a, it. Does exactly that. You can put in your email address. It'll tell you where you have accounts. It'll allow okay. you to. Um, it'll allow you to basically um, cancel you know, your cancel delete those accounts. Yeah. Right. Okay. And so the controversy was that this company, oh, shocker, has been using data which apparently is anonymized and is in their terms of service agreement, and they have been selling that, um, you know, to make money. Look at that, ladies and gentlemen. From Aurora, Colorado. Is that right, Ben? With Google. Well, I live on. in Littleton, but I work in Aurora. You keep okay. going with your story. I just want to be able to <laughs> to present. So I'm I'm getting it charged up. It's been at least six months since I've had it on. It's super great that you have the charging wire on there. I think that actually adds a lot to it. it gives you more of a. Basically, you could tell us that you are an early adapter with Elon Musk and Neuralink, and that <laughs> is actually you know connected to the brainstem. Well, and and believe it or not, I wrote it into a a school based grant, so I didn't have to pony up the fifteen hundred dollars. Nice. Uh, I it was a it was a video capture tool for classrooms, so you could see the point of view of teachers as we were capturing from like Swivel and other uh, video capture. So you had like student perspective and you had teacher perspective of the video. And so that's what we used it for originally. And then it just became kind of a personal device after about a year and a half. So, yeah. And if you all don't know, by the way, um, Ben and his team, and that was in Denver public schools, just have done amazing work with, you know, self-reflection and building a community of trust and being able to share video and all the ways that you can use these tools like swivel. Um, Martin wants to know why you chose the blue though. Uh, you know, I, the blue was absolutely my favorite. I, I absolutely love the blue. The the thing that I miss the most is I broke my uh, my sunglasses. They used to have these uh, these sunglasses that would just twist into it, and I just wore them as sunglasses uh, for about a year, and just absolutely loved it. But they broke, and I was like, I can't find these sunglass inserts anywhere. Um, and you look online and they're like a hundred dollars now. They're like super rare or whatever. Um, you know, so at some point I'll probably figure it out. But, uh, but anyway, you know, you, you ask for, for the golden episode. I, f- I felt compelled. So. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, so back, back to our little story about un- uh, unroll. Um, I had tweeted out to people, you know, hey, have you used Unroll? Just wondering, you know, it, legitimate wise, is, is this good? Because the service sounds like an appealing service. I, I have many of us as early adopters have gone into all kinds of websites. We've set up accounts. We may have used OAuth, which we talked about in a, in a, a I don't know how many episodes ago, but that's where you use your account credentials, like with Google, to log into something else. And there's actually security concerns that some people have written about. And so it sounds like a good service, but you know, I wasn't personally shocked to go, Oh my gosh, they're using anonymized data and selling it. Um, Jason, did this, did this shock you and cause you to immediately, you know, drop your unroll account or how, how do you um, respond it, to these? It, it did not shock me, but I do think that um, the CEO had tweeted out that, uh, um, that it, it, like a, like a fake apology, basically that I'm, I'm just shocked that people, you know, uh, didn't understand that, that we were using their data in this way, or that I'm shocked that they didn't understand this process. And I'm saddened by, by this fact. And the bottom line is, is that, you know, we have to be more savvy than this. I mean, like, I, I, I don't think anyone should be surprised by this fact either. There is no free lunch on the internet. There's, 
Uh, there are, are, you know, and if there is a free lunch, chances are it's not going to stick around for very long because they're going to run out of venture capital and uh, have no uh, way of making money. And then the service goes away and that does you absolutely no good either. Okay, but let's mention Mastodon, right? We didn't talk at length about this, but an exciting social network that is FOSS free and open software, uh, very Twitter like, uh, TweetDeck like, and anybody can run an instance. So, you know, to your point, it is true. Someone is going to pay. Someone is going to pay for that server to be online. Um, you know, we do have things like Patreon and, and ways that people are funding things these days. But especially in terms of, of the big social networks and, and the things that are attracting tons and tons of people, you know, we are the products. We've said this before. And that's, an, that's a good digital citizenship line if you haven't shared that with your students to, to have them think about when are you the product on Instagram, on Snapchat, on Facebook, on any of these platforms, Twitter, that you're not paying for your data, uh, the ability to advertise to you, all of those things are being monetized. Absolutely so my, true. my last thought on this enroll deal is it from a security standpoint, uh, it is important for all of us to take stock of our passwords and what we've used places. I think I'm up to a 157 different accounts now on my password manager. And it's really, it's becoming normal. Um, one of the things I heard at this conference for IT departments that I, we're going to start doing is using the LastPass manager for teams because that we've done Google Docs and some other things, but we've got a whole slew, right, of passwords and things like that. And we want to selectively share those. I mean, everybody doesn't get access to everything, but being able to do that is um, it's important. And so to the to the issue of enroll, you know, if you've had that one that that password that you've used for years it's out there in the wild, right? I mean, go to the, almost certainly it's out there. Go to the website, Have I Been Pawned? And we'll, we can drop that one in the show notes again. I think we've mentioned it. And it, it is a, uh, it's like a public service, but the creator has taken the, the uh, databases of, of uh, hacks and identified whether your, your, you know, just email account, your password as well are out there and, you know, my main Gmail was involved in both an Adobe hack and a LinkedIn hack. And um, we need to be aware of those things. And as I, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, be aware of these programs that hackers are using, which will go scan through hundreds of sites and say, oh, you know, I just got Ben's, you know, use, you know, password that goes with this email account. I wonder if he used it on any of these other three or 400 different sites and then being able to compromise those. So. There it is. Thank you, Peggy. All right. Well, uh, it appears that we are at 854. (laughs) That that went quick, didn't it? Um, It's probably time for our Geeks of the Week. So, um, Wes, I'll go ahead and get started. Um, So I I want to share an app this week that um, I'm I'm only getting started with, but I'm surprised how great it is. It's called Google Trips. and uh, as, as I've talked about on the show, I am traveling to Europe for, for uh, 10 days in June. Um, I'm going to hang around in Sweden um, uh, to hang around with the, the family of a foreign exchange student that, that's coming to our house uh, in the fall. And uh, what I plan to do um, uh, is to plan the trip now. Like I, I'm a, I usually print out a, like a 10, a 10 day, uh, calendar and I start to put dates in, times and things. Well, uh, Google Trips recommended me by a friend and I downloaded it uh, on my Android phone. And the first thing that happened when I loaded the application was it said, Oh, you have a trip to Sweden in June, don't you? And I'm like, Oh, you know me already, Google Trips. And as it turns out, it had all my airline reservations in it. I had already made one hotel reservation. It also appeared in um, the trip. Um, it also spotted my airline flight to ISTE at the end of June. So it really wants to, to help me plan for my um, uh, trip to, to Austin in uh, late June. So um, that that's awesome, too. But it's it, it reminded me a lot of um, grabbing a travel guide like a Lonely Planet or maybe one of the wonderful Rick Steves books uh, on traveling to Europe. It provides um, you know play, things to do, places to stay, reviews based on Google's extensive archive. They'll send you out to other review sites, and so far I'm I'm really liking. It. I've only spent probably an hour in a total just kind of playing around with with the trip that it knows I'm taking to Sweden in June. 
But I think it's one of like if, if someone is going to trade on your data, like our good friends at Google do, um, I want it to benefit me. And one of the ways it benefits me is that when it goes into my Gmail account, it knows an awful lot about me and it can help me plan that trip. So Google Trips so far, wonderful application, iOS and Android. Sounds good. Well, Ben, we'll put you on the spot here in a minute for a, a geek of the week. If you, I, I have confidence you can come up with something, but I'll go uh, with mine. Uh, this is the Clips app for iPhone, and this is something Apple announced uh, probably about a month or so ago, maybe two months. I don't know. It's been this uh, spring, and it's like, well, do we really need another video app? But as they typically do, yay! I'm waving my Apple flag. Um, you know, Apple is is just on the forefront of of technologies that. That take you further. So what the thing that's so cool about the Clips app, it doesn't have its own social network for hosting and sharing video. You do that on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, whatever. But when you record a video inside the app, it will analyze your audio. And when you tap the little comment speech bubble at the top, it does an automated speech to text. And the, the stuff says it works in 36 different languages. Now I'll say this. I demonstrated it day before yesterday for our middle school faculty. And in my testing right before we started, I tried in Spanish and it was so embarrassing. I would have been just like horrified to do this in front of a group and, and have what came out because it, I, I don't know. I tried to load Spanish and get that to work. So I haven't gotten the multi-language side of it to, to work, but I put a link in to a little goofy video I made at the Atlas conference. Um, shout out to Elaine Wren, who is um, a uh, fellow Apple Distinguished Educator out at the Echo Horizon School, and also uh, Sam Patterson, who's kind he is like off the charts creative with uh, with uh, Waka and his puppets that he does. Anyway, they are doing some great design thinking and, and uh, design challenges for students, and they use puppets to introduce these to kids. Anyway, they said, you know, represent your learning. Here, you're designing cars. This was a, de- a design challenge, and uh, one of the choices was to do clips. So she encouraged me to do that, and that's my encouragement to you. Download the Clips app. You have to have a relatively new iPhone, and I think you do have to be running iOS 10.2, definitely iOS 10, uh, and then experiment with the speech to text. You uh, will play it and pause and then just tap on the text, and then you can edit it as Siri often, you know, get some words wrong and you need to adjust things. So from an accessibility standpoint, Jason, with virtual learning, you know, that need to provide video that folks who are hearing impaired are going to be able to listen to. I don't know that that's going to revolutionize it tomorrow, but this is a good sign of where the technology is moving with speech to text and accessibility. I will pass it to Ben. Yeah, and I would echo the Clips app is pretty amazing for that speech text. I mean, I've used it a number of times, and it is spot on. Um, if you even talk at a reasonable pace, it is just beautiful. Um, <clears throat> the one thing that I, I struggle with is that it does square video rather than uh, 16 by 9, which is what I prefer, um, like even on, on an iPad where you would think if you turned it, you know, uh, into landscape that it would, nope, that just doesn't work. So Clips works on an iPad just fine. It just only makes square in portrait. So anyway, that's that's how that goes. But you inspired me. I had a couple of options in the back of my head, but um, I ran across uh, possibly the best video editor on iPad that is absolutely free and does not have any uh, in-app purchases called Pocket Video. Um, and so Pocket Video is a video blogging uh, app. And because I'm just on the Hangout on my phone, uh, if somebody can grab the link and, and pop it in there, that would be great. But Pocket Video um, does a whole bunch of things. The coolest thing that it does is it lets you add um, reaction GIFs uh, as well as images to annotate. It lets you draw on the video as it is happening, um, where you're actually annotating the video itself. Um, and then it lets you also do reaction videos to YouTube videos that already exist. So you can pull in YouTube videos that currently exist and react to them as they are playing, and it will capture you just like any of your favorite YouTubers, right? Um, but you can have kids, you know, reacting to a piece of content that they're learning about, pausing it, reacting in video form, like just tons of stuff. And the fact that they're not charging anything for this app makes it even more interesting to me. 
Um, so Pocket Video, I just sort of ran across it because I was looking for a better video editor on iPad. Um, lots of really cool stuff. Um, you can add music. Um, and I, I feel like, uh, it's, it's what iMovie could be if it wanted to be more complex. Um, but I'm really excited about, uh, if you've ever watched, uh, Idea Channel, the PBS, uh, show on YouTube, um, it's, it's where they put like in up in the top corner, you've got, you know, like a reaction GIF or like something that goes deeper into the topic. Like you just search for them and pull it in. And then you say how long you want it to be there. And I was just like flabbergasted. So go and try that out. Pocket video, super duper cool. Wow. That is fantastic. Well, uh, as many of our shows can be with Geeks of the Week and things like that, uh, we've got some things that I'm anxious to give a try to. So I think it was two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, when we, we had um, Beth Holland on I, in my excitement to end the show. I didn't even give us a chance to say where we're from. So we're going to we'll wrap up with that. Uh, ben, you want to start? Where can people find you and connect with you online? Absolutely. So I'm Ben Wilkoff. I work for Aurora Public Schools, and uh, you can catch me at BH Wilkoff um, on Twitter and Learning is Change on the blog. All right, Jason. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach. Um, I also blog for the Northwest Council for Computer Education at blog.ncc.org, where I am the Tech Savvy Administrator in Residence. And then um, my day job is that I help run the Montana Digital Academy, um, montanadigitalacademy.org, and we're always cooking up interesting and new stuff on ways to deliver digital learning to the students in the state of Montana. Awesome. And I am Wes Fryer. Uh, my blog is speedofcreativity.org. I'm W Fryer on Twitter. And you can find my Mastodon link if you'd like to join the early adapters or adopters there uh, by going to about.me slash W Fryer. All of my notes from the Atlas conference last week are available in Google Docs. And you can get to those from the shortened link wfryer.me slash Atlas 17. That's A-T- L-I-S-1-7. But the place you really want to go is edtechsr.com and click the link for tonight's show where we'll have all of the show notes and you can also link back to the articles that we did not touch on. I want to say thanks to Ben and thanks to uh, Jason for joining us live. Thanks to Peggy and Martin for joining us on our chat room or in the chat room. And we want to encourage you to come back because we're normally here on Wednesday nights, 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain. And if you've got any feedback for the show, anything you'd like to hear us talk about or guests you want to suggest, perhaps you'd like to nominate yourself as a guest. You may do that. Uh, and you don't have to show up with Google Glasses. But thanks for tuning in <laughs> to our 50th anniversary show or 50th episode, I guess. And we look forward to uh, 50 more with you on the EdTech Situation Room. Have a great night.